Good morning. I was recently in Tennessee with my brother. We were on a road trip, and on the way back from Tennessee, we came into the state of Pennsylvania on our way home. And like every state, there are those signs that welcome you back into the state. And I remember, as I recall anyway, whenever I would drive into Pennsylvania, it would say, Pennsylvania, you've got a friend in Pennsylvania. But last time I was driving back into the state, this is what the sign said. Pennsylvania, pursue your happiness. No longer do you have friends here. That doesn't matter. You're here to pursue your happiness. I was reading from a spokesman at PennDOT who was describing why they made this change. And he said, we wanted to make the change because we wanted to remind people you're entering the cradle of freedom where you have the right, per the declaration written in this state, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So when you're coming into Pennsylvania, what the state of Pennsylvania wants you to mainly think about, the attitude we want you to have is, Pursue your happiness. And I was thinking, if we had a sign as you entered into this room for worship on a Sunday, what would it be? Would it be Grace Community Church, pursue your happiness? Or would it be something different? And I was thinking about this sermon series we're in where we're saying it's all about you, which might at first glance seem like pursue your happiness, except for the you isn't you or me, the you is God. We're here to worship God, not to have the attitude that says we're here to pursue our happiness. But it brings up the question, what do we do about the fact that even as we enter into this room and in one side of our brain know we're here to worship God, to reflect back to him, his greatness for all that we have seen and know of him, there's a part of us that's really good at being an American and a Pennsylvanian that says, I kind of just want to pursue my happiness like I do everywhere else. How do we deal with that challenge when we come here to worship? And what I believe the big idea is this morning that we want to look at is I believe it's important that every Sunday, every time we gather, we come and check our attitude that you and I check our attitude to see, is it actually an attitude of worship that says, I am here for you, God? Or is it an attitude that basically says, I'm here to pursue my happiness? So as Keith last week, in week five of our sermon series, this is week six, we'll have one more week after this, as he was talking about preparation for worship before we arrive, during the week, Saturday, Sunday morning, I want to talk about what is the attitude of worship we're to have when we arrive, when we come here to worship together. Now, I might say we need to check our attitude, but how do we do that? Well, there's three different ways that I believe flow out of this psalm that Robin just read. But before we walk through those ways, I first want to give you an overview of Psalm 51 so that you know the context as we read through it. One thing that I didn't have Robin read, but if you look in your Bibles at Psalm 51, you'll see there's actually a heading to that psalm. It says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's supposed to send the reader back to the book of 2 Samuel, where in verse, chapters 11 and 12, we see that David, who was king of Israel, was basically at his palace, instead of going out to war 
with the other soldiers in his army. David was too much of a good Pennsylvanian for that, pursuing his own happiness back at the palace. So he's just hanging out, pursuing his happiness, and he sees a woman bathing across the way. He lusts after her, desires her, and even though she's married to someone in his army, he has her brought to him, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. David thinks, oh my gosh, I got to cover my tracks. He tries to figure out a way to get Uriah, her husband, back to sleep with her so that it looks like he's the real father. That doesn't work out. So David decides to do the next best thing, which is kill Uriah. So David now breaks two commandments, one about murder, the other about adultery. But David doesn't even feel that bad about it. He kind of feels justified, tells the person who killed Uriah to feel okay about this. Until one of God's prophets, Nathan, comes to David and shows him what he has done. And David realizes his sin. And when David realizes his sin, he cries out to God in confession, repentance. And that's what we see in Psalm 51. It's what's called one of seven different penitential psalms. Even though the Psalms, all 150 of them, as has been said, kind of show us every single emotion a human can have. These seven Psalms, the penitential Psalms, show us when we are crying out to God in confession and repentance, which is an attitude of worship that we want to have when we are here. So how do we adopt that sort of attitude here that says it's all about you, God, versus an attitude that says it's about pursuing our happiness? Well, as we walk through this psalm, I believe it's going to reveal to us three different questions you can ask yourself every Sunday morning. It's sort of like a self-assessment for you of worship, okay? These are three questions. First, have I looked in the mirror yet? Second, am I thinking more about who, who God is, or about how, how the service is being run? And then third, am I serving me or we? Am I serving myself or others. We'll explain more as we go through each of these questions. But first, the first question, which is, have I looked in the mirror yet? Now, Grace isn't a church that I would say, as you look around, that we dress up a lot when we come here. Some of us do sometimes. Some of us do more than others. But on the whole, we're not really, we're kind of more of a casual church in terms of how we dress. But we probably expect some, some level of looking in the mirror before you come here just to make sure you're not a complete wreck, to make sure you don't have mud and dirt all over yourself, right? We would probably all appreciate that from one another. Well, for David in this psalm, he is looking in his spiritual mirror. He is looking at himself and his own sin. And just notice some of the language that he uses. Verse 1, he says to God that he would blot out my transgressions. Verse 2 Wash away all my iniquity. Also, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, cleanse me again. And then also, wash me. Verse 9, blot out all my iniquity. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart. David's basically saying, I'm looking in the spiritual mirror. I'm looking at myself and my soul. And I'm seeing just how much dirt is there. God, I need you to blot this out. I need you to purify me. Clean me up. Now, you might think, well, David, isn't this just you being extreme because you did a really bad thing? I mean, you committed murder and you committed adultery. But notice what he says in verse 5. He says, from birth, he's been dealing with these struggles. 
This isn't something new in David's life. What David's saying is this bent I have towards sin has shown up here. But in reality, it's something I've always struggled with. And as David's looking in a spiritual mirror, he says in verse three, his sin is always before him. He's just seeing how much of himself is actually flawed. Now, why do I say when I look at David doing this, why is it so important for us to look in our spiritual mirror? Or at least ask if we have when we arrive here. For at least two reasons. If we don't look in our own spiritual mirror, there's a good chance we'll be more likely to see the sin of one another, which is pretty easy to do, right? In, in, in any community of people. So we'll be much more likely to say, man, there are those people, that, those clicky people, that I, they always look like they're having so much fun on social media. I'm never included. There's that person who said that thing that was really obnoxious, and I just can't let it go. There's that person who knows what I posted on social media about how bad of a week I'm having. They never even asked me how I was doing. None of those attitudes is going to help us come to the place where David is at, where we are worshiping God because we're seeing our own sin first and foremost. And if we don't have that attitude that looks in our spiritual mirror first, there's also the problem that we're going to be in a place where we might not even realize how much we need God. Remember, David, after he committed adultery and murder. He didn't feel that bad about it. It wasn't until Nathan put up his spiritual mirror to David and said, look at what you've done, that David came to a place of confession, repentance, and worship. That's why we need to look at our spiritual mirror. Now, there might be a couple of objections to this. Name a couple. One might be, Dave, when you're saying to look in the spiritual mirror, aren't you just going to lead me to a place of shame and self-hate? Wasn't Whitney Houston right when she said the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself? With all respect to Whitney, David's problem wasn't so much that he didn't love himself enough. He didn't love Bathsheba. He didn't love Uriah. And he didn't love God enough. Now, that doesn't mean we won't have times where we look in our spiritual mirror and realize, I'm, I have a distorted vision of myself, right? Just like someone who's struggling with anorexia and looks in the mirror and sees weight that really isn't there. So it's possible. And I've seen it. People look in their spiritual mirror and they're struggling to receive God's forgiveness and they can't get over things they've done. And they need a Christian brother or a Christian sister to help them have a more objective look in the mirror. But we're not calling here when we look in our spiritual mirror to have a distorted look. We want to take an honest look in the mirror. And see where we're at. Now another objection could be. It sounds Dave like you're saying. I shouldn't really pay attention to the sins of other people. That I just need to ignore wrong things that people are doing. Aren't I supposed to acknowledge and deal with those wrongs that have been done against me? And that's a good point. You know Psalm 3 and many other Psalms have David talking about people who sinned against him. He calls them his enemies. And he cries out to God for help. Jesus himself said, when someone sins against you, go and show him your fault, his fault, and deal with that. That's all right and good to do. But Jesus also said, when you see that speck in someone else's eye, make sure that you first are seeing that log in your own eye. It doesn't mean there's no speck in your brother or sister's eye. It just means if you're not taking that log and addressing it in your own eye, you're not going to be seeing their sin clearly. 
So it's yet another reason, even though we acknowledge the sins against us and want to deal with those and reconcile with people, we want to make sure that as we do that, we're first looking at ourselves and saying, have I dealt yet with the sin in my life as I now go to that person? So the first question I think we're called to ask ourselves is, have I looked in the mirror yet? But there's a second question I think is worth us asking, which is this. Am I thinking more on a Sunday morning about who or about how? About who God is, his greatness, or about how the worship service is being run? If you look at David in this psalm, he's not just looking at his own sins. He's not just looking in the spiritual mirror. He's also looking at God. That looking at himself has led him to looking at God. Look at some of the things he has to say, just focusing on who God is in worship. Verse one, he talks of God's unfailing love. Verse one, again, your great compassion. Verse four, you are justified when you judge. Verse 14, you who are God, my savior. Verse 14, again, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. David has looked at himself, but he doesn't end there. He's now looking at God. You might say, instead of just looking at the, at the mirror, he's also looking at the ceiling. Now, this is an ancient church building. And as you see, like a lot of ancient church buildings, the ceilings are really high. And I was talking to Jeff Harris recently. Some of you know Jeff. He used to go here and he's a church architect. And we were talking about how church buildings had been made during these periods and why the ceilings were so high. And what Jeff said was, when you would enter these church buildings, they wanted you to get the sense that this was a space where heaven and earth met. And that when you were ushered into this space, your eyes were drawn upward by the high ceiling so that you were thinking immediately about God. But if I'm honest with myself, I've always struggled to think more about the how a service is being run, keep my eyes down here, than to be looking up at God. I remember back in high school, I was part of a church where I loved the preaching. And I loved how one, how one particular person preached. I loved how one particular person played guitar and sang and the songs he chose. And when they were both there, man, I was worshiping. But if they weren't there, I was pretty annoyed. I was like, why is he preaching? I can't. Why, is, why isn't he leading, leading? I hate when she leads. She's not as good a guitar player. I hate the songs she chooses. Maybe I should just go and I'll come back next week and see what they have to offer. Right? That was kind of the mindset I had. And this mindset that I have there can happen in any church. It could happen at Grace. Right? So some of us might go, man, when Robin leads, he plays a mandolin, he does that kick drum at the same time. I love when he leads. Or Chris, he gets so excited and passionate. Or Dave Schmidt, he plays electric guitar. Or Steven, he's such a good pianist. Or you say on and on. And when they don't show up, your heart sinks. You go, man, there's always another Sunday, I guess. Focused on the how. Or maybe it's the preaching. You know, we have this preaching team now. So you have different people preaching on different weeks. And maybe when you saw me walk up here, you went, oh, why? Why Dave? Any of the rest of them, but why Dave? Right? You may have thought that. Now, you might say, 
but aren't we supposed to want good preaching? Aren't we supposed to want well done worship? And there's something to be said for that. Psalm 33, it says, sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy. We want to aspire to worship God with instruments in a skillful way. And Paul said to Timothy and in determining who was going to be the overseers of the elders, they should be able to teach. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, use the gifts you have. Don't try to be someone else using someone else's gift. Because when you use your gifts, it really helps the common good of the whole body of Christ. All that is true. And it's true that as a church, we want to take times to really evaluate how we are doing. So we've done surveys that we've sent out. Tomorrow, the elders are going to meet with the worship ministry team and evaluate how are things going with our worship ministry. This Thursday, as we do on a weekly basis, the preaching team will talk and meet. And they'll be reviewing what I'm talking to you about right now. About, Dave, you know, this worked. This is something you could grow on. Something could be done better. That's all good. Evaluation is good. But when our mind is more on evaluating how a service is being run than on engaging God, there can be a real danger there. And we talked about it last week in our discovery class on the life of Paul. This has happened since the beginning of the church. We've struggled with this sort of stuff. And Paul was speaking about it to the Corinthians because there were divisions because some people like different teachers in the Corinthian church more than others. Look what Paul says. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. So even the apostle Paul wasn't good enough for some people. Some people went, I really like Apollos. He really knows his Old Testament well. He can connect the dots with Jesus. I love it when he speaks. Or Peter, he actually was with Jesus for three years. He's a leader of the church. I love it when he speaks. Or Paul, he planted this church. Let's go with him. And Paul's saying, this is causing unnecessary division here. Yes, we should pay attention on the how and make sure we're doing it as well as we can. But we need to watch out for the danger of getting so caught up in the how that we're losing the who in the mix and are actually not having a worshipful attitude when we're here. David even recognized, I think, some of this problem. When if you look down at verses 16 and 17, David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David isn't saying, do away with all the sacrifices, all the ways of offering worship to God in that old covenant context. He's saying, we just need to make sure that as we're doing this, as we're focused on the how, that we're not losing sight of God and that we are not coming with an attitude that isn't worshipful. Because if we're doing all this really well without an attitude that's worshipful, it's meaningless. So that second question worth asking, in addition to, have I looked in the mirror yet, is am I thinking more on a Sunday morning about who God is or about how this is all being run? But there's one last third question I want to look at, and it's this. Am I serving me or we? In other words, am I serving myself when I gather with the church or am I serving others? 
If you look at David, again, in the context of this psalm, he's the leader of Israel, the king of Israel. He was a man with a very powerful position. But David was not a servant leader. He was not using that position to serve his people. He was using that position to serve himself. Like we're seeing a lot today, and that the Me Too movement has uncovered, is powerful men like David who were saying, Instead of serving my people, I'm going to serve my sexual needs. See, in the entertainment industry, politics, we also see it, unfortunately, in the church. I'm not going to name names, but there's pastors I can name where this has happened. They've used their power not to serve their church, but to be served, to get what they want and what they need. But if we're honest with ourselves, I think this can happen at any ministry level for any of us. So let's give you a few examples. I'm standing here right now, and there is a part of me that wants to help you love God more. And there is a part of me that wants you to think, I'm smart, I'm spiritual, you know, I'm wise. There's a part of me that wants that. There's a part of me that wants you to serve me by thinking more highly of me. Now I have to ask myself, am I here to serve you, or am I wanting you to serve me? And that can be true for anyone in any teaching role here. When we get up and we lead worship musically, there's a part of us that wants to worship God. But there could be a part of us that wants you to think, I'm talented. Kind of wants to be a rock star. Kind of wants you to be impressed with me. That's a danger. When we're on ministry teams, we take, that, we take very seriously our ministry teams here at Grace. And if you're a ministry leader or a member of the ministry team, there's going to be that challenge. Am I here just to get my own way? Or am I here to serve this team and here to serve the church? And maybe sometimes I don't get as much out of it and I don't even get my way. But that doesn't matter because I'm here to serve the church. And this can be an issue not just if we're on a ministry team or in a position. It can be an issue when we're thinking about how to participate in the life of the church. Um, in as we gather in different spaces, for, again, from the early time of the church, there were people struggling to really serve themselves versus others. This happened in communion services. This church in Corinth was really struggling, as you can see. Another quote from Corinthians. Paul says this, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and others get drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul's saying, you're coming not to serve the church, not to serve God. You're coming to serve yourselves, get drunk and eat. Not really to make sure the community is worshiping. And in our own church, you know, these are those cards we have out, I believe, on our information wall that show our vision and our mission as a church. We're here to live lives of worship together. And there's different ways we do that. One of them I'm going to draw attention to right now is community. The third one down. What does that mean? It's, it means that it has to do with worshiping through our relationship with one another in Christ. And how do we show that? Well, through things like life groups and using our gifts for others. Now, there's plenty of times where we need to say no when someone from the church asks us to do something. Because we may need to say, there's some other thing I got to be responsible for. I need to be able to serve my family. I need to be able to 
get rest. I need to be able to have this other priority that I just can't say yes to this. But we do need to watch out then when we are thinking about what to participate in, we are at least asking us, am I serving others here or attempting to serve myself? So a few examples. When we decide, and I've heard it said in, in all churches I've been a part of, um, should I, do I want to be involved in a life group? Well, I don't know that I really need a life group because I've got my own, I'm kind of okay. I have friends. And you may not need a life group. But it's possible that life group may need you. It's possible the gifts you have could be really helpful to people in that group that could benefit from what you bring. Maybe people who don't have as many friends as you do. And you might think if you're a student here, I don't know that I really need ransom. Like I kind of have my friends. I have my group and they're great. And that may be true that you don't need it as much as some others do. But it's possible that that ransom life uh, youth group needs you. Because it's possible certain students may be there saying, I need more Christian friends. I need people who are going to use their gifts for me. So again, this isn't meant to be a guilt trip. I have to say no. You need to say no. We have to know what it is that we can do and what we can't do. And sometimes it's appropriate to do less at church so that you can do more for your community, do more in getting to know your neighbors. That's not the point here. It's that whenever we have to decide, do I go to a men's retreat, a women's retreat? Do I get involved in this or that ministry? Am I having in my mind as motivation, whether I'm serving myself or serving others in that mix? It's worth asking ourselves that. One of the things you see David thinking about here, when you go to um, verse 13, is that after David has looked at God, looked at himself in the mirror, after David has looked at God, He says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David's recognizing it doesn't just stop with addressing himself and with focusing on God. He needs to think, how does that see itself through to my service to others? Am I serving me or am I serving we? As Keith had pointed out last week, when we're in corporate worship together, there's a different dynamic than when we're at home alone with God. Because it's not just a me and God. There's a me, there's a God, and there's a we all together. So my, my desire is that these questions would be ways that we could check our attitudes so that we have a worshipful attitude, one that says, God, I'm here about you, rather than God, I'm here to basically pursue my happiness. But there is a danger with these questions. And the danger is this, two extremes. That either these questions could drive you on the one hand to despair. Where you're thinking, God, you must not love me. I never answer correctly to any of these questions. I'm condemned. What's the point of trying anymore? Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum where where these questions are actually driving you to pride. I don't need to ask these questions. I'm fine. My attitude's fine. And even if I did ask them, I'm sure I'd be doing okay. But these questions aren't meant to drive you to either despair or to pride. These questions are meant to drive us to Jesus. Because the good news, the gospel, isn't that we can answer these questions well. The good news is that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, is the answer to each of these questions. And each of these questions can drive us to him and that good news. So that when you're asking yourself, When I look in the mirror, God, where am I at with you? And you're seeing 
the stains of sin. You're seeing the struggles that some people don't even know about. Let that question drive you to Jesus who took upon himself that dirt, who took upon himself those spiritual stains, who became dirty so that you could become clean and be forgiven and restored in right relationship with him. When you're asking yourself, am I actually thinking more about how this service is run than about who God is? Let that question drive you to Jesus. Who came, even though he was the most skilled worshiper we could imagine, he came not glorifying himself or others. He came, he said, to glorify the father, to point people to the father. And when he gathered disciples around himself, he didn't gather the most skilled worshipers. He didn't gather around himself the smartest worshipers. And when you look at the disciples, you see he gathered around himself pretty unskilled, uneducated people who needed a lot of TLC and patience from Jesus. And finally, when you ask yourself, am I serving me or we? Am I serving myself or others? Let that question drive you to Jesus. The son of David, the king of Israel, the eternal ruler of the world, who unlike his ancestor David, practiced servant leadership by getting on his knee to wash his disciples' feet. And the next day came not to serve himself, but to serve us by giving himself as a ransom for us so that we could be his. Let these questions not drive you to despair or pride. Let them drive you to Jesus so that you can experience his, his forgiveness as we confess and repent Sunday by Sunday, each time we gather. And that over time through the power of his spirit, we might be able to come here and together worship him with a Christ-like attitude. Let's pray. Father, I first want to confess my own sin, realizing that I often don't come to worship you in a Christ-like way, that I'm often looking at other people's sins rather than my own, that I'm often fixated on evaluating people more than engaging you, that I'm often looking to see how serving others is actually a way to serve myself. I confess that I am flawed in each of these ways. But thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you that I and we as a church can be made right through what you have done for us. Help us as a church. Help us to have a worshipful attitude when we arrive, that we would be known as a church that is all about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.